Solving 9-11, Part 2. I'm Robin Upton, and as the title would suggest, we're continuing from where we left off last week. This is Christopher Berlin reading his book, Solving 9-11. We continue with the second part of Chapter 3. In June 1967, the Israeli Air Force and Navy deliberately strafed, bombed, napalmed and torpedoed an unarmed U.S. vessel, the USS Liberty, and tried to kill all of its nearly 300 crew members simply to achieve a strategic goal. Recently released documents from the National Security Agency confirm that the United States government at the time had evidence that the Israelis had deliberately attacked the USS Liberty, knowing it was a U.S. vessel. Oliver Kirby, the NSA's Deputy Director for Operations at the time of the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty, confirmed the existence of the transcripts to John Crudston of the Chicago Tribune in 2007, saying he had personally read them. Quote, asked whether he had personally read such transcripts, Kirby replied, I sure did. I certainly did. They said, We've got him in the zero, Kirby recalled, whatever that meant, I guess the sights or something. And then one of them said, can you see the flag? They said, yes, it's U.S., it's U.S. They said it several times, so there wasn't any doubt in anybody's mind that they knew it. Kirby, now 86 years old and retired in Texas, said the transcripts were something that's bothered me all my life. I'm willing to swear on a stack of Bibles that we knew they knew. Close quote. The planes involved in the attack reported directly to the commander of the Israeli Air Force, Major General Mordecai Hood. Hood, also known as Mordecai Fine, was from Kibbutz Tiganya, like Moshe Dayan, the defense minister he served under. Hood left the military in 1975 and created Cal, an Israeli air cargo company. After only two years, he left the company and became chief executive of El Al Airlines from 1977 to 1979. In 1985, he founded an unnamed security company, according to his June 2003 obituary in The Guardian. From 1987 until retirement in 1993, he was the chairman of Israel Aircraft Industries. ICTS, the Israeli Airport Security Company, was a key defendant in the 9-11 tort litigation. The ICTS website says this about the company. Quote, ICTS International NV was founded in 1982 by a select group of security experts 
former military commanding officers, and veterans of government intelligence and security agencies. Close quote. An employee of ICTS told me in 2001 that Huntley USA, their wholly owned airport security subsidiary, had handled passenger screening at Boston and Newark airports on 9-11. As a matter of fact, the Mossad-linked company probably had people at every one of the airports involved in the attacks of 9-11. The ICTS company website says, quote, In 1998, ICTS International NV made a strategic decision to focus on the U.S. market. The following year, it acquired Huntley USA Corporation, which provides airline passenger screening services at 47 U.S. airports, including all the international aviation gateways in the United States of America. The ICTS company developed out of LL. LL is the state airline of Israel, their security. The Israeli airline security firm went through a number of name changes as it began providing security to European and American airports. Cover-up. The U.S. government, military, and media all went along with the cover-up of the deliberate attack on the USS Liberty to avoid blaming Israel for the murder of 34 American servicemen, 26 of whom died from a torpedo blast, and the wounding of some 173 others. Shimon Peres, the Israeli president, certainly knows who made the decision to attack the U.S. vessel in 1967. Moshe Dayan, defense minister during the Six-Day War, was a close associate and political ally of Shimon Peres. In 1965, former Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and his closest advisors, including Shimon Peres and Moshe Dayan, broke away from the ruling Labour Party, Mapai, and formed a separate minority faction, the Rafi, or Workers' List. The Crudson article reveals that the Israelis knew very well that the USS Liberty was an American vessel in international waters before they fired the torpedo that killed 26 U.S. servicemen. Quote, Twenty minutes later, after the Liberty had been hit repeatedly by machine guns, 30-millimeter cannon, and napalm from the Israelis' French-built Mirage and Mystere fighter bombers, the controller directing the attack asked his chief in Tel Aviv to which country the target vessel belonged. Apparently American, the chief controller replied. Fourteen minutes later, the Liberty was struck amidships by a torpedo from an Israeli boat, killing 26 of the 100 or so NSA technicians and specialists in Russian and Arabic who were working in restricted compartments below the ship's waterline. Close quote. Sink the target. No survivors. Lieutenant James M. Ennis, Jr., an officer on the bridge of the USS Liberty, wrote his first-hand account of the Israeli attack in a 1979 book entitled Assault on the Liberty. Lieutenant Ennis' book provides evidence that the Israeli attack was deliberate and not an accident of war. Ennis describes how Israeli torpedo boats repeatedly machine-gunned Liberty sailors fighting the napalm fires on deck and shot her life rafts in the water while an oversized U.S. flag flew from its mast. The shooting of the life rafts indicates that the Israelis did not want anyone to survive the assault and intended sinking of the U.S. vessel. Steve Forslund, an intelligence analyst for the 544 
Air Reconnaissance Technical Wing in 1967 saw the transcripts from the Israeli pilots and their ground control as they came off the teletype machine at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha. Quote, The ground control station stated that the target was American and for the aircraft to confirm it, Forsland recalled. The aircraft did confirm the identity of the target as American by the American flag. The ground control station ordered the aircraft to attack and sink the target and ensure they left no survivors. Forsland said he clearly recalled the obvious frustration of the controller over the inability of the pilots to sink the target quickly and completely. He kept insisting the mission had to sink the target and was frustrated with the pilots' responses that it didn't sink, he said. Chief Petty Officer Stanley White, President of the Liberty Veterans Association, said, The Israeli planes and gunboats spent more than one hour hitting us with rockets, napalm bombs, torpedoes, cannon, and machine gun fire. They machine gunned our firefighters on deck and they shot our life rafts out of the water. I don't know of a single member of our association who believes the attack was an accident. There are three reasons that have been given as to why the Israelis wanted to sink the U.S. electronic reconnaissance vessel. One, to prevent the U.S. from knowing that Israel was planning to seize the Golan Heights from Syria. Two, to prevent the U.S. from obtaining evidence that Israeli troops were slaughtering some 1,000 Egyptian prisoners of war near Gaza. Three, to destroy the U.S. vessel that was capable of discerning that Israel was sending false communications to Jordan and Egypt to prolong the war until the Israeli military achieved its territorial goals. The U.S. intelligence documents indicate the Israelis attacked the Liberty deliberately. They feared she would monitor their plans to attack the Golan Heights in Syria a move the United States opposed for fear of provoking Soviet military intervention, Ennis wrote. Wilbur Crane Eveland, an author formerly with the CIA in the Middle East, wrote that the Liberty had intercepted messages that made it clear that Israel had never intended to limit its attack to Egypt. Israeli Massacre The Tribune article of October 2, 2007, about the new revelations concerning the attack on the Liberty, reported that the NSA's deputy director at the time, Louis Tordella, speculated in a recently declassified memo that the attack, quote, might have been ordered by some senior commander on the Sinai Peninsula who wrongly suspected that the Liberty was monitoring his activities. The activities that needed to be hidden included the slaughter of some 1,000 Egyptian prisoners of war. Arya Yitzhaki of Bar-Ilan University, who worked in the Israeli Defense Forces History Department, said in an August 1995 interview with Israel Radio that a reconnaissance unit known as Shached, or Almond, headed by Benjamin ben Eliezer, had killed hundreds of Egyptians who had abandoned their weapons and fled into the desert during the 1967 war. Yitzhaki said, he had investigated six or seven separate incidents in which approximately 1,000 unarmed Egyptian prisoners of war had been killed by Israeli forces. The U.S. Marine Barracks, Beirut, 1983. Sixteen years later, 241 U.S. Marines died 
when a Mercedes truck packed with explosives demolished their barracks at Beirut International Airport on October 23, 1983. A similar explosion occurred nearly simultaneously at the French military barracks a few kilometers away, killing 56 French troops. In the wake of the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon, President Ronald Reagan sent 1,800 Marines to Beirut to act as peacekeepers. Ariel Sharon and the Israeli leadership, however, resented the interference and used the U.S. presence to commit a false flag operation that killed 241 Marines, according to Viktor Ostrovsky in his book on the Mossad, by way of deception. Ostrovsky, a former Mossad officer, reported that Nahum Admoni, the Mossad director at the time, had very specific information about the truck being prepared for the attack on the U.S. Marines, but had intentionally withheld this crucial information from the U.S. military. Quote, No, we're not there to protect Americans. They're a big country. Send only the regular information, Admoni reportedly said. Admoni, the son of Polish immigrants, was director of the Mossad from 1982 to 1989. In 1947 and 48, Admoni had served in the Shai, the Haganah intelligence branch headed by Iser Harel, and later in the newly created IDF intelligence agency, Amman. After the 1948 war, Admoni studied at the University of California, Berkeley, until 1954. The purpose of the false flag terror bombings in Lebanon was to create U.S. animosity toward the Arab world and align the United States with Israel, according to Ostrovsky. There had been an earlier car bomb at the U.S. Embassy in Beirut on April 18, 1983, which had killed 17 Marines. The truck bombing compelled the Marines to move offshore, and President Reagan ordered them to be withdrawn from Lebanon on February 7, 1984. Israeli intelligence is suspected of having been involved in the 1983 bombing of the Marine barracks, the deadliest single-day death toll for the U.S. Marine Corps since the Battle of Iwo Jima. War on Terror The Israeli strategy of using terrorism to instigate U.S. animosity toward the Arab world, which began with the Lavon Affair in 1954, reached its goal of bringing the United States into a fraudulent war on terror with the false flag attacks of 9-11. With its U.S.-led invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq, the war on terror was the fulfillment of a key strategic goal for Israeli military planners. To have the armies of the United States and European nations occupying Iraq, the most powerful and advanced Arab nation, has long been the dream of Zionist strategic planners. Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, has explicitly called for a global war on terror since 1980, when his first book, International Terrorism, Challenge and Response, was published by the Yonatan Netanyahu Institute. Netanyahu's appeal for the Western democracies to wage war against Israel's foes was repeated and amplified in his 1986 book, Terrorism, How the West Can Win. Although it is never mentioned as such in the controlled press, it needs to be understood that the pre-planned invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq are, in fact, wars of aggression. To prepare for and carry out a war of aggression is a serious war crime under the Nuremberg Principles of 1950. 
the United States and its allies convicted and literally strangled to death dozens of senior Nazis at the Nuremberg trials for having committed such war crimes. In the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. government failed to prove that the terror attacks had been planned, sponsored, or executed by members of the ruling Taliban regime prior to invading Afghanistan. Ten years later, the U.S. government still had not proven a connection between the Taliban regime and 9-11. On June 5, 2006, author Ed Haas contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigation headquarters to ask why. While claiming that bin Laden was wanted in connection with the August 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, the Most Wanted poster did not indicate that bin Laden was wanted in connection with the events of 9-11. Rex Toom, chief of investigative publicity for the FBI, responded, The reason why 9-11 is not mentioned on Osama bin Laden's Most Wanted page is because the FBI has no hard evidence connecting bin Laden to 9-11. Toom continued, Bin Laden has not been formally charged in connection to 9-11. Likewise, there is no evidence of involvement in 9-11 by any member of the regime of the former Iraqi leader, Saddam Hussein. Furthermore, allegations that the Iraqi regime had obtained weapons of mass destruction, trumpeted by senior officials of the Bush administration and Judith Miller of the New York Times, turned out to be lies crafted solely for the purpose of deceiving the public and provoking another illegal invasion. The passage of time does not make a war of aggression any less criminal. Decades of Planning The same key people who were involved in the 1954 Israeli terror bombings of the U.S. Information Agency libraries in Alexandria and Cairo were holding high-level positions in the Israeli government in 2001. There are other Israelis with long histories of terrorism and strategic planning who revealed having very specific prior knowledge of 9-11 long before 2001. The highest Israeli intelligence at the time of the Lavon affair, Iser Harel, was evidently aware of the long-term planning of 9-11 more than 20 years before it happened. In 1980, 21 years before the attacks, Issa Harel, the former director of Haganah Intelligence, the Shin Bet, and the Mossad, predicted with uncanny accuracy the events of 9-11 to Michael D. Evans, an American Zionist supporter of the Likud. On September 23, 1980, Evans visited Harel at his home in Israel and had dinner with him and Dr. Reuven Hecht, a senior advisor to Prime Minister Menachem Begin. In an editorial entitled America the Target, published in the Jerusalem Post of September 30, 2001, Evans related what Harel had told him 21 years earlier in 1980. Quote, I sat with former Mossad chief Issa Harel for a conversation about Arab terrorism. As he handed me a cup of hot tea and a plate of cookies, I asked him, do you think terrorism will come to America, and if so, where and why? Harrell looked at his American visitor and replied, I fear it will come to you in America. America has the power, but not the will to fight terrorism. 
The terrorists have the will, but not the power, to fight America. But all that could change with time. Arab oil money buys more than tents. As to the where, Harrell continued, New York City is the symbol of freedom and capitalism. It's likely they will strike the Empire State Building, your tallest building, he mistakenly thought, and a symbol of your power. Close quote. In another article on his Jerusalem Prayer Team website, entitled Jimmy Carter, Radical Islam's Ally, Evans relates the same story about Harrell. Quote, My last question was, would terrorism ever come to America? You have the power to fight it, he said, but not the will. They have the will, but not the power. All of that will change in time. Yes, I fear it will come to New York and your tallest building, which is a symbol of your fertility. Close quote. In 2004, Evans published a book entitled The American Prophecies, Terrorism and Mideast Conflict Reveal a Nation's Destiny. In a subsequent interview, published under the title Is America in Biblical Prophecy? Evans explained what Harrell meant about fertility symbols. Question. So extrapolating from the scenarios of the Bible, what do you believe is our nation's future based on prophecy? Evans. The story of prophecy that has to do with the Jews goes all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24. The disciples said, What shall be the signs of the coming of the end of the age? And he said, The first sign would be deception. Now, there's never been greater deception than what happened on September 11, 2001. Question. Why do you say that America's story is contained within biblical prophecies? Evans. America stepped into the eye of the prophetic storm when it took covenant with both Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham, the Arab and the Jew. Most of the Bible talks about this battle between these two brothers, and we're right in the middle of it. On September 23, 1979, the founder of Israeli intelligence over dinner told me that America was developing a tolerance for terror. The gentleman's name was Iser Harel, the founder of Mossad Israeli intelligence. He ran it from 1947 to 1963. He told me that America had developed an alliance between two countries, Israel and Saudi Arabia and that the alliance with Saudi Arabia was dangerous and would develop a tolerance for terror among Americans. He said if the tolerance continued, that Islamic fundamentalists would ultimately strike America. I said, where? He said, in Islamic theology, the phallic symbol is very important. Your biggest phallic symbol is New York City, and your tallest building will be the phallic symbol that they will hit. Issa Harrell prophesied that the tallest building in New York would be the first building hit by Islamic fundamentalists 21 years ago. Close quote. The interview with Evans is published online on BeliefNet, a Zionist propaganda network disguised as a religious website. Stephen Waldman is CEO, co-founder, and editor-in-chief of BeliefNet. Previously, Waldman was national editor of U.S. News and World Report, national correspondent for Newsweek, and editor of Washington Monthly. One of BeliefNet's directors is Michael Perlis, 
the former president of the Playboy Publishing Group. Think about this for a minute. The founder of Israeli intelligence tells an American Zionist in 1980 that Arab terrorism will come to America and that the terrorists will strike the tallest building in New York City. His bizarre prediction, which makes no sense, then comes to pass 13 years later with a fake terror bombing in 1993, evidently set up by the FBI. The FBI-coordinated false flag terror event is then followed eight years later by a spectacular, well-planned, and extremely lethal attack which kills thousands. So how did Issa Harrell know what Arab terrorists had planned more than two decades before 9-11? Issa Harrell, Mossad's master terrorist. Under David Ben-Gurion, Issa Harrell was the former chief of Haganah Intelligence from 1944, the Shin Bet from 1948, and the Mossad until 1963. Admoni, the Mossad director who refused to warn the U.S. Marines in 1983, had served under Harrell. Given his unique position and penchant for terrorism as a means of coercion, the uncanny accuracy of Harrell's prediction says more about the years of Israeli planning that went into 9-11 than it does about any criminal plots of alleged Arab origin. After nearly two decades as the head of Israeli intelligence, Ben-Gurion reportedly asked Harrell to resign in 1963 because of his use of terror bombings as a means of coercion against the West. Harrell, as director of the Mossad, had initiated the Damocles operation of the early 1960s, which was a terror bombing campaign to threaten German scientists and prevent them from helping Egypt develop its defense systems. Two Mossad agents were arrested and jailed in Switzerland for using terror bombs against German scientists. The wife of one scientist was killed in a mysterious explosion. A second scientist disappeared, and the secretary of a third scientist was blinded and mutilated by a mail bomb in Cairo. As Ian Black and Benny Morris, authors of Israel's Secret Wars, a history of Israel's intelligence services, wrote, Quote, Dr. Heinz Krug, director of a Munich-based Egyptian front company called Intra, had disappeared mysteriously and was presumed murdered in September 1962. On October 7th, Harrell left for Europe to personally supervise authorized operations and the special collection program. In November, Amman, IDF intelligence, sent several letter bombs to the rocket installations in Egypt, and one of them, a large parcel that had been mailed by sea from Hamburg, killed five Egyptians. Someone with a black sense of humor dubbed the campaign post-mortem. Close quote. It is interesting to note that Yosef Goel, a columnist with the Jerusalem Post, published an editorial entitled Iser Harel and the German Scientists on February 22, 1991, in which Israel's English-language newspaper delivered a thinly-veiled threat of Harel-type terrorism to European scientists and companies doing business with Arab nations. Quote, The directors and managers of those firms and the experts who work for them should be reminded that they are playing with their lives and the welfare of their families, it would be well if they went back and studied the episode of Iser Harel and the German scientists in Nasser's missile program of the 1960s. Close quote. 
The Lavon Affair. The Lavon Affair, or the Shameful Affair, as it is known in Hebrew, was an Israeli false flag terror bombing campaign against the United States and Britain that was carried out in Egypt in 1954. Israeli military intelligence had set up a terror cell of sleeper agents in Egypt, which was activated in July 1954 to blow up U.S. and British targets. The Israeli operation was codenamed Susanna. The false flag terrorist bombings were meant to be blamed on Egyptians in order to alienate the United States and Britain from President Gamal Abdul Nasser and prevent Egypt from nationalizing the Suez Canal. The Lavon Affair is seldom discussed in the media or in university courses on Middle Eastern history. Strict censorship in the Israeli media even prevented the Israeli public from knowing about the affair for many years. Only in 2005, 51 years after the bombings, did Israel finally admit responsibility for its 1954 false flag terrorist bombing campaign in Egypt. The bombings were carried out between July 2nd and July 27th, 1954, by a covert terror cell composed of about one dozen Egyptian Jews under the command of Israeli intelligence agents. The Israeli-run terror cell was discovered and broken up on July 27, 1954, when one of its members was caught in Alexandria after the bomb he was carrying exploded. An Israeli terrorist cell, Unit 131, was reportedly responsible for the bombings. At the time of the incident, Unit 131 is said to have been the subject of a dispute between Amman and Mossad over who controlled it. The Egyptian operatives had been recruited several years earlier when an Israeli intelligence officer named Avram Dar went to Cairo posing as John Darling, a British citizen from Gibraltar. Dar recruited Egyptian Jews who had helped the Mossad with illegal immigration to Israel and trained them for covert operations. The Israeli terror cell went to work in the summer of 1954. On July 2nd, a post office in Alexandria was firebombed. On July 14th, the U.S. Information Agency libraries in Alexandria and Cairo and a British theater were bombed. The bombs contained nitroglycerin and were placed on the shelves of the libraries. After the terrorist cell was discovered, three of the Israeli terrorist commanders succeeded in fleeing Egypt and the fourth committed suicide. After the trial in Cairo, Two of the accused Egyptians were condemned to death and executed, and eight were condemned to long terms of imprisonment. Moshe Sheret The Israeli Prime Minister and Foreign Minister at the time, Moshe Sheret, was evidently unaware of the intrigue, which had been carried out by disciples of David Ben-Gurion, namely Israel, Moshe Dayan, and Shimon Peres. Sheret born Shertok in Ukraine, was Israel's first foreign minister from 1948 until 1956 and second prime minister from 53 to 55. Sheret held both positions at the time of the Israeli terror campaign. Sheret, who appears to have known nothing about the terror ring, only became informed of the facts afterwards. In October 1953, shortly before Ben-Gurion took a two-year hiatus in the Negev desert, leaving Sherat in charge, 
he appointed Pinhas Lavon, a staunch supporter of the retaliation, that is terrorism policy, as Minister of Defense, and nominated Moshe Dayan as Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces. When Sherat was told of Ben-Gurion's decision to nominate Dayan as Chief of Staff, he penned this note in his diary, quote, the new chief of staff's immense capacity for plotting and intrigue making will yield many complications. Close quote. Lavon terrorized the West. Pinchas Lavon, Israel's minister of defense at the time of the bombings, was part of a group of military leaders who advocated the use of terrorism against the Western nations, particularly Britain and the United States. This group included the Polish-born immigrants David Ben-Gurion and Shimon Peres, otherwise known as Shimon Perski, and Moshe Dayan, the kibbutz-raised son of Ukrainian immigrants. In January 1955, Sherritt wrote about Levon to Aaron Barkat, Secretary General of the Mapai Party. Quote, He, Levon, inspired and cultivated the negative adventuristic trend in the army and preached the doctrine that not the Arab countries, but the Western powers are the enemy, and the only way to deter them from their plots is through direct actions that will terrorize them. Close quote. When the Israeli terrorist plot against Britain and the United States was exposed, Ben-Gurion blamed Lavon, who in turn blamed Colonel Benjamin Givli, another Ben-Gurion protégé, and the head of Amman, Israeli military intelligence. Lavon said that Givli had organized the covert operation behind his back. Sherat and Israeli Terrorism Prime Minister Sherat, however, had no doubts about the guilt of the Diane perez givli clique, according to the late Israeli historian Lavia Rokach, the daughter of Israel Rokach, the former mayor of Tel Aviv, and Minister of Internal Affairs in the Sherat government. Quote, For him, Sherat, the question of who gave the order was secondary to the necessity of pronouncing a judgment on the ideology and politics of Israel's terrorism. Therefore, while he had no doubts about the guilt of the Diane Perez Givli clique, to him, Lavon's political responsibility was also inescapable. Close quote. As Sherritt wrote about Lavon on January 10, 1955, quote, People ask me if I am convinced that he gave the order. But let us assume that Givli had acted without instructions. Doesn't the moral responsibility lie all the same on Lavon, who has constantly preached for acts of madness and taught the army leadership the diabolic lesson of how to set the Middle East on fire, how to cause friction, cause bloody confrontations, sabotage targets and property of the powers, and perform acts of despair and suicide? Close quote. As a moderate Zionist, Sherrod believed that Israel's survival would be impossible without the support of the West, Rokach wrote, but that Western morality and interests in the Middle East would not support a Jewish state which, quote, behaves according to the laws of the jungle and raises terrorism to the level of a sacred principle. Shimon Peres, Frighten the West In May 1947, Ben-Gurion drafted Shimon Peres into the Haganah High Command, 
where he was initially put in charge of manpower and later became involved in arms procurement and production. Perez served as chief of the Naval Department in 1948 and was sent to the United States in 1950 on an arms procurement mission. Perez was instrumental in acquiring weapons for the Haganah and establishing the Israeli defense industries, especially the aircraft and avionics industries, according to his biography. He is also known as the godfather of Israel's high-tech defense industries and illegal nuclear arsenal. Perez built an alliance with France that secured a source of arms and was responsible for the program to develop nuclear weapons for Israel, convincing the French to help Israel build a secret nuclear reactor at Dimona in the Negev Desert in 1957. It was Perez who acquired the French advanced Dassault Mirage III jet fighters that the Israeli Air Force used to attack the USS Liberty in 1967. About Shimon Peres, whom Sherrod considered to be one of the key planners of the terror bombing campaign of U.S. institutions in Egypt, he wrote this note in 1955. Quote, Peres shares the same ideology as Lavon. He wants to frighten the West into supporting Israel's aims. Close quote. Two years later, in 1957, Sherritt wrote even more critically about Perez. Quote, I have stated that I totally and utterly reject Perez and consider his rise to prominence a malignant, immoral disgrace. I will rend my clothes in mourning for the state if I see him become a minister in the Israeli government. Close quote. Sherritt's terrorist adversaries, Ben-Gurion, Diane, and Perez, however, prevailed and dealt a crushing blow to the very hypothesis of moderate Zionism, Rokach concluded. Quote, in the final analysis, the West, and in particular the United States, let itself be frightened or blackmailed into supporting Israel's megalomaniac ambitions because an objective relationship of complicity already existed and because once pushed into the open, this complicity proved capable of serving the cause of Western power politics in the region. Close quote. The immense profits that have flowed into the coffers of Western drug and oil cartels as a consequence of the Anglo-American control over the opium production of occupied Afghanistan and the oil of occupied Iraq illustrate Rokach's view that Israeli false flag terror is capable of serving the cause of Western power politics in the region. As Rokach concluded in her study of Sherritt's diary and documents, quote, Just as Zionism, based on the depalestinization and the Judaization of Palestine, was intrinsically racist and immoral, thus the West, in reality, had no use for a Jewish state in the Middle East which did not behave according to the laws of the jungle, and whose terrorism could not be relied on as a major instrument for the oppression of the peoples of the region. Close quote. By April 1957, Sherritt realized that the hardline terrorist faction headed by Ben Gurion and his protégés Diane and Perez had won, and that he and his vision of moderate Zionism had lost. Quote, I go on repeating to myself nowadays, admit that you are the loser. They showed much more daring and dynamism. They played with fire, and they won. 
The public, even your own public, does not share your position. On the contrary, the public now turns even against its masters, and its bitterness against the retreat from Sinai and Gaza is developing into a tendency to change the political balance in this country in favor of the former Irgun terrorist leader, Menachem Begin. His, as Sheretz, defeat in internal Israeli politics reflected the ascendancy of the positions of Ben-Gurion, Diane, and others, including Perez, who were not reluctant to use force to attain their goals, Noam Chomsky wrote in his foreword to Rokach's book. Quote, his diaries give a very revealing picture of the developing conflict as he perceived it and offer an illuminating insight into the early history of the state of Israel with ramifications that reach to the present and beyond. Close quote. 9-11 and the war on terror are clearly two ramifications of the victory of the terrorist Zionists that reach to the present. Had Moshe Sheret, the Israeli Prime Minister, spoken frankly and torn up the mask of secrecy surrounding the Israeli terror bombings, he could have changed the history of the Middle East, as Rokach wrote. Quote, At this point, Sheret could have changed the history of the Middle East had he spoken frankly and directly to public opinion, which was deeply troubled by the events in Egypt, the arrests, the trial, the executions, the contradicting rumors, the climate of intrigue surrounding the affair. By tearing up the mask of secrecy, denouncing those who were responsible, exposing his true convictions in regard to Israel's terroristic ideologies and orientations, and proposing an alternative, he could have created for himself the conditions in which to use the formal powers that he possessed to make a radical housecleaning in the security establishment. The impact of such an act would have probably been considerable not only in Israel itself, but also in the Arab world, especially in Egypt. The downfall of Lavon on one hand, and of the Ben-Gurionist gang headed by Diane and Perez on the other hand, might have blocked Ben-Gurion's return to power, and in the longer range, the Sinai-Suez War. Events since then would have taken a different course. Close quote. Unfortunately, the Ben-Gurionist gang, headed by Diane and Perez, came to power. Perez, who had been appointed to high-level positions, was elected to the Knesset in the 1959 elections. Perez, the former Director General of the Ministry of Defense under Moshe Dayan, then became the Deputy Defense Minister, a position he held until 1965 when he was implicated with Diane in the Lavon affair. On June 5, 1967, Israel started the Six-Day War when it launched a preemptive attack against Egypt and its Air Force. Yitzhak Rabin was Chief of Staff, and Moshe Dayan was Minister of Defense during this crucial war that reshaped the Middle East. Ben-Gurion and his gang of Dayan and Perez had formed a new party in 1965, Rafi, partly due to their involvement in the Lavon affair. Dayan and Perez had worked closely together since their days in the Haganah. Shimon Perez, Terrorist-in-Chief Shimon Perez a most unsuitable recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994, has a long history of terrorism which is not well known in the West. Paris, the octogenarian president of the State of Israel, has a record of involvement in terrorist crimes over a period of more than five decades.
Perez is a survivor of the struggle among Zionists between the militant hardliners who promoted the use of violence and terrorism and the moderates who opposed terrorism and advocated the use of diplomacy. Shimon Perez is a hardliner. Born Shimon Perski in Poland on August 2, 1923, Perez is the first cousin of Lauren Bacall, the Brooklyn-born Betty Joan Persky. This relationship is a good example of how Zionist Jewish families from the Pale of Settlement often established branches in Israel and the United States in the early 1900s. In 1947, the Polish-born Zionist leader David Ben-Gurion, born David Grün, met Shimon Peres, then age 23, at Haganah headquarters and made him responsible for manpower and arms purchases for the underground Zionist militia Ben-Gurion commanded in Palestine. Perez became a protege of Ben-Gurion. After the bombing of the King David Hotel and other terror killings by the Haganah and other Zionist terror groups, the British withdrew from Palestine. The armed gangs of Zionist immigrants and veterans of the Red Army then turned their skills of terrorism, which some had gained during World War II, against the indigenous population of Palestine. Nearly 400 Palestinian towns and villages were completely obliterated or ethnically cleansed during the 1947-48 Zionist conquest of Palestine. Perez was also the chief of the Israeli Navy, whose main task at the time was the illegal smuggling of men and arms for the Zionist forces in Palestine. Perez assumed the position of director of the Defense Ministry's procurement delegation in the United States after the 1947-48 war, according to his biography. As director of arms procurement in the United States, Perez was responsible for organizing illegal arms smuggling. Transfers of weapons and planes to Zionist forces in Palestine violated the U.S. Neutrality Act. Much of the Haganah arms smuggling activity was run from an office above the syndicate-owned Copacabana Club in New York City, where Perez and Teddy Kolek, the Hungarian-born son of the director of the Rothschild Bank in Vienna, worked closely with the crime syndicate headed by the leading Jewish gangsters of the time. After World War II, Kalek had been sent to New York to serve as the Haganah representative and head of its weapons purchasing team in New York. Also deeply involved in the Zionist arms smuggling were the American Jews Adolf Schwimmer and Hank Greenspun. Greenspun, the Las Vegas-based publicist for mobster Benjamin or Bugsy Siegel, was eventually pardoned for his crimes by President Bill Clinton a close friend of the Greenspun family. In 1951, at the request of Ben-Gurion, Schwimmer and Perez founded Bedek, the military's aviation firm that became Israel's largest company, Israel Aircraft Industries. In 1952, the same year Ben-Gurion made Iser Harel the head of the Mossad, he appointed Perez to be Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Defense. The next year, at the age of 29, Perez became the youngest ever Director General of the Defense Ministry, a position he held until 1959. It is interesting to note that Perez never attended university or served in the army, according to the Israeli daily Haaretz, 
of June 14, 2007. As Director General, Perez was a founder of Israel's military and its subsidiary, Israel Aircraft Industries. Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, put Perez in charge of the establishment of Israel's unlawful nuclear program and secret reactor at Dimona in the Negev Desert. Perez has never been popular with Israeli voters. Although he served twice as prime minister, he was never elected to that position. In 2000, he even lost a parliamentary election for the presidency to Moshe Katsav, an Iranian Jewish immigrant. Perez served as Israel's foreign minister under the Likud right-wing Ariel Sharon from early 2001 until November 2002. In July 2007, at nearly 84 years of age, Perez finally won the presidency, but only after Katsav was forced to leave office under a storm of allegations of rape and sexual misconduct. One might wonder why an 84-year-old man would want to be president. Is this an example of the maxim, no rest for the wicked? Is Perez still working because he needs to protect the critical secrets about 9-11 and the war agenda it launched? Oddly, prior to 9-11, Perez, a politician from the left, held the most powerful position of deputy prime minister and foreign minister in a government led by a prime minister from the extreme right, Ariel Sharon. Perez held these positions in the Israeli government from March 3, 2001 until November 2, 2002. Sharon, who reportedly became comatose in January 2006, is a well-known Israeli terrorist and war criminal with a long record of committing atrocities in Palestine and Lebanon. Perez, godfather and chief architect of Israel's high-tech military and unlawful nuclear arsenal, is a person who has always supported the use of terror to coerce the West to support Israel's strategic goals. He has been involved, at the highest level, in numerous covert false flag terrorist operations, such as the Lavon Affair, which was even kept secret from the Israeli Prime Minister at the time. Did Perez use his senior position in the government of like-minded terrorists to launch the false flag terror attacks of 9-11 in order to coerce the United States and the West into the Zionist planned war on terror? Shimon Perez has the credentials of a Zionist arch-terrorist. Furthermore, he has the record, the worldview, and the capability to be an architectural-level planner of 9-11. Is Paris one of the masterminds behind the terrorist crime of the century? Were Isser Harel and Mordechai Hod also involved in the planning of 9-11? To help identify the architectural-level planners behind the false flag terrorism of 9-11, we need a better understanding of how such terrorist attacks can be carried out within the context of anti-terrorist exercises. One military exercise being conducted on 9-11, for example, simulated a passenger plane crashing into a military building near the Pentagon. Was there a connection between the simulated attack and the real one? Chapter 4. The Terror Drills That Became Real. 9-11, the London Bombings, and the Sinking of Estonia. Quote, The easiest way to carry out a false flag attack is by setting up a military exercise that simulates the very attack you want to carry out. Captain Eric May, 
former U.S. Army military intelligence officer. The terror drills that became real, 9-11, the London bombings, and the sinking of Estonia. The past two decades have been marked by a large number of terror events which remain unsolved to this day. Several of these events involved heinous crimes of mass murder and are similar in a remarkable way. These are the disasters which occurred during security drills or military exercises in which the scenario was incredibly similar, if not identical, to the real-life terror attack. Understanding the nature of the exercises that formed the background and framework for these attacks is essential to understanding how the attacks were carried out. The fact that these real-life terror events occurred within the context of virtually identical exercises has been completely ignored by the media, as if the exercises had never happened. Of the major terror events that occurred during such exercises, we will look at three specific examples. The aerial attacks of 9-11, the bombings of the London Underground and a bus in 2005, and the sinking of the Baltic ferry Estonia in 1994. While there certainly have been other major disasters that occurred within the context of military exercises, such as the sinking of the Russian submarine Kursk in 2000 and the 1988 downing of Iran Air Flight 655 by the USS Vincennes in the Persian Gulf, the three events being discussed here involved attacks on civilian transportation systems far from any war zone. The three disasters were all handled in the same way by their respective governments and media. In each case, before a proper investigation could begin to establish the facts and examine the evidence, a politically acceptable explanation was put forward by government officials and repeated, without question, by the mass media. Evidence that contradicted the official version of events was confiscated, destroyed, or simply ignored. The extremely hasty and improper destruction of the steel from the World Trade Center, for example, must rank as the most egregious case of destruction of evidence from a crime scene in American history. In late September 2001, officials uncovered a criminal scheme to divert metal to dumps in Long Island and New Jersey. Some 250 tons of scrap metal were found at unofficial dump sites. In November 2001, the trucks carrying steel from the World Trade Center were outfitted with a global positioning system, GPS, device, monitored by an Israeli named Yoram Shalmon of Power Lock Technologies of Toronto, a contractor in the cleanup project. Shalmon was then able to track nearly 200 trucks in real time as they carried the crucial steel evidence to the scrapyards that destroyed it using Power Lock's Vehicle Location Device, VLD, Each VLD unit cost about $1,000. We were able to start identifying patterns of behavior. If a driver arrived late, the traffic analyst would look at why. Maybe the driver stopped for lunch, or maybe he ran into traffic, Shalmon told Jacqueline M.E. of SecuritySolutions.com. 99% of the drivers were extremely driven to do their jobs. But there were big concerns because the loads consisted of highly sensitive material. One driver, for example, took an extended lunch break of an hour and a half. There was nothing criminal about that, but he was dismissed. There were also cases where trucks did little detours from their routes, Shalmon said. 
Likewise, during the official dive for evidence to the wreck of Estonia, on which more than 852 people are known to have died, the crucial locking bolt from the bow visor, which officials say caused the catastrophe, was thrown back into the sea. The bolt had been removed by divers and brought to the surface for investigation only to be thrown back by Börja Stenström, the Swedish Navy commander who was the head of the technical group of the International Investigation Commission. According to German investigators, Stenström threw away the bolt, which according to his own explanation of the sinking was, quote, one of the most important pieces of evidence, close quote. The first rule in managing a criminal cover-up is to control access to the evidence. The second rule is to destroy any and all evidence that contradicts the official version of events. The fact that these three disasters all occurred during exercises that simulated similar terror scenarios has been ignored by the mass media, which has treated these extremely uncanny coincidences as complete non-issues. Information about the exercises has been kept from the public. The government cover-ups have been facilitated by the compliant mass media, which has consistently ignored the fact that these disasters occurred within the context of strikingly similar terrorism exercises. The terrorist attacks, for example, that struck New York and Washington on 9-11, and the London bombings of July 7, 2005, were the realization, that is, the making real, of computer-based scenarios that were being staged in the same place at the same time. Would a truly free press ignore the fact that these terror atrocities occurred within the context of terror exercises? The easiest way to carry out a false flag attack is by setting up a military exercise that simulates the very attack you want to carry out. Captain Eric H. May, a former military intelligence officer from the U.S. Army, wrote in an article entitled False Flag Prospects 2008, Top 3 U.S. Target Cities. This is exactly how government perpetrators in the United States and United Kingdom handled the 9-11 and 7-7 terror attacks, May writes, which were in reality government attacks blamed on terrorists. False flag terror attacks are designed and carried out with the intention of having a targeted foe wrongly blamed in order to manipulate public opinion and foment war. Captain May certainly knows what he is talking about. He is an expert in military exercises involving simulations. May completed advanced courses at the U.S. Army's School for Military Intelligence Officers at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and served five years with the U.S. Army's 75th Division as an opposing forces controller, where he ran contrarian scenarios. May's aim, he says, as a former military intelligence officer who spent five years conducting war games, is to warn the public that the next 9-11, constantly promised by officials in the media, is likely to be carried out under the guise of future military exercises.